Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. So what I'm going to do is I'll briefly introduce the speakers. They have a presentation, we'll speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll open it up for the question and answer period. And we have the chat function turned on, so you can just enter comments or questions in there as we go. And you can also use the raise hand feature at the end in the question and answer period, and we can get to you that way as well. So our speakers are Dr. Julia Brooke, who is an assistant professor in the Dan School of Drama and Music here at Queen's. She is a former elementary school and piano instructor whose current research focuses on accessibility and equity of music education in both schools and communities. And she's currently working on a funded project with our second speaker, Dr. Colleen Renahan, that considers universal design principles for musical theater performance. Dr. Colleen Renahan is also an assistant professor in the Dan School and is the Queen's National Scholar in Music Theater and Opera. She's recently published a book entitled The Operative Archive, American Opera as History. So congratulations for that, that's a big deal. Um, and finally, we have Ben Schnitzer, a PhD candidate in cultural studies here at Queen's. He's studied voice and performing and has worked in cultural policy for the Canadian government. And his short funded research focuses on Canadian cultural diplomacy. So welcome the three of you and I will hand it over to you. Great, thanks so, thanks so much, Carolyn. And on behalf of Colleen and Ben and I, we just wanted to publicly thank Aisha and Carolyn and Irun for this lovely invitation to come and speak to you today. We're really excited about that and for all your help leading up to this, um, to this presentation. So as Carolyn mentioned in the introduction, Colleen and Ben and I have been working for the last couple of years on a Shirk funded project that is examining what the lived experiences are of people who are working across the cultural domain. So I'll turn it over to Colleen. Great, thanks, Julia. So our study, which we will outline in just a few moments, was a 2018 and 2019 study. But as we discovered in March and April, our findings became only more relevant when we considered them in the context of the pandemic. This is because, as our study reveals, the pandemic didn't create, but rather magnified, the precarity of work in music, particularly in the performance domain. And it also magnified the need to examine current structures, policies, and priorities. We've written about this, um, as, as was mentioned in a piece published in, um, this summer in the online publication, The Conversation, and maybe Julia can just pop that in the chat if you'd like to check it out. So here on the slide, you'll see some images of pandemic music making. And there are some striking things to notice here. The most prevalent to me is the lengths to which we went to, to both perform and take in musical performance during lockdown. And maybe you can all agree, I'm sure we were all um, looking for, you know, for music at that time. We see here, you know, on the slide, some folks performing chamber music in a, in a sort of distanced way and in an empty theater at the bottom. Um, we see folks on the rooftop here in the, the bottom right performing, and of course the famous balcony performers, like the gentleman in the top right who's wearing seemingly a tuxedo and who's singing opera on his balcony. And there's many other examples as well. So COVID-19 underscored the importance of the arts and culture for our health, for our sense of belonging, 
um, as entertainment or perhaps escape and for many other things. You know, theorists have written about the significance of um, the significant role that music can play in community making. And I felt this come to life for me in the context of the pandemic. Musicologist Julian Johnson writes that music, quote, facilitates a relation to an order of things larger than ourselves. It also connects us to one another, which was incredibly important during, you know, especially those early pandemic days. By, under, um, by making us understand ourselves as part of a larger trans-subjective identity, he writes. But, you know, here's the darker side. COVID also magnified the degree to which our work in music performance is incredibly precarious. And this was also revealed to be true of the more quote-unquote secure work that many Canadian performers do, not only the work in the so-called gig economy, which is the context in which most musicians um, do their performing work, COVID highlighted the ramifications of this precarity in really terrifying and tangible ways. So for example, it highlighted the structural issues in many of our arts organizations. And just as a personal anecdote, I have um, some many good friends who make a good living singing with the Canadian um, Opera Company Chorus. And of course, they, they lost contract, they lost the rest of their contracts for the year as of March. And uh, it was later revealed that the administration and also the orchestra were being paid for months after. So there's some, you know, real structural inequities there and in many other arts organizations as well. There was a beautiful and tragic piece in the New York Times um, in April that described the performing arts as a fragile, endangered ecosystem. And I think that's a really apt metaphor. So finally, this period also catalyzed movements to acknowledge and dismantle systemic racism across the arts. And this was initially spurred by the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, but of course points to issues that long predate uh, this event. And I think that this moment of crisis of required uh, reorganization gives us an opportunity to re-examine some of the structural inequities across the performing arts and to rebuild them in more equitable ways. And so I will just note that the problems that we identified in career pathways, which you'll hear about in a moment, also reveal really significant equity issues in the current system, which Ben will illuminate further for us, and which we would be very happy to speak about further in the discussion period that follows. So just to summarize, COVID-19 has again not created, but has magnified or heightened the need for systemic change and realignment in the arts. So when we think about, um, on the next slide, you'll see um, these three silos. So when we think about what it will mean to reframe or realign, we think about what we mean or what is encompassed in education and training. And one of the focuses we have is on the Bachelor of Music degree, which is considered a professional program that um, really developed in mid 20th century when they were training people to work in orchestras or choirs. And, and there has been um, little change um, over the past several decades, and there's been lots of calls to actions to retrain those things. Um, the other thing is to think about is the musician's roles. And we also often think about a musician and their roles, like many jobs, as a singular entity. And often we think about performers and we think about educators, and we don't necessarily explore what else is possible. And so many people who have finished 
um, a degree in music who are interested in working in this field, but aren't interested in education or performance may feel a sense of paralysis or helplessness because they're not really sure how to use the skills and knowledge and their passion for music in other ways that align with some of their interests. And then the third thing is, is the cultural domain. So Ben is going to speak more about these. And these are the ways that Statistic Canada has defined the different roles in the different sectors um, to talk about different ways that we make and create culture. And music is embedded in all of these. So when we think about realigning and reframing, we want to know how each of these things, what the experiences are within each of these, and then also how they can talk to one another. And then finally, I'll just speak to the idea of equity, particularly in terms of education and training. And we think of equity in, in a couple of different ways. One is how um, one gains entrance into undergraduate degrees in music, which is often um, audition-based, which often means you need private instruction, which means you need to come from a family structure that will allow, has the means to pay for that kind of time and labor to invest in your music training. Also within the degree programs, they're largely built on a Western classical framework, both in contents and structure. There's been lots of calls to dismantle that because it's not representative of types of music making. So there's lots of different nestedness um, around the ways that we think about musicking in our, in our structures. So Ben's gonna talk a little bit more now about the cultural domains. Okay, so uh, as um, Carolyn mentioned, I used to work for the government but now I'm in cultural studies. So now I look at these statistics and I go, hmm, what does this all mean? And what this is, is as Julia said, this is the way that the government of Canada organizes culture, disciplines culture into different discrete domains. And that might not necessarily represent the lived experience of artists. And, but it does show ostensibly the amount of money that is generated by culture and the number of jobs that are being done in culture. But, you know, as we wanna understand the breadth of work available to students with training in music, and it's important to enable students to leverage them and take advantage of these opportunities, we really have to understand what these numbers are actually saying and what they're not saying. First of all, this does not really present a full picture of the world work in music because it only captures people's primary occupations. And once every four years, people are asked, what did you do in the previous week? And they only capture what you've spent the most time doing. So if you are somebody who works for the government like I did, but you also work in music, it's, it's only gonna capture the, the job that you spent the most time doing. Also artists who uh, work in education or um, who are, uh, artistic instructors are, are gonna be categorized in the education and training category, and not necessarily as individuals who are instructors of voice. So it sort of under, under reports the, the, the cultural nature of work. But I think for the most, for our purposes, what this really shows uh, is although there's $53 billion in GDP contribution, uh, it doesn't really translate into the income of people working in the arts. And in 2017, the medium in, median individual income for Canada's artists was only $24,300. And that's 44% less than the median for all Canadian workers. And musicians and singers earned even less uh, of $17,900 per year or 59% less than the median. And to put this into perspective, when I was working in music and I worked 
tried to work full-time in music for a while. One year I made the grand sum of $20,000 a year and that was huge. That was uh, a really amazing year because I made that from performance and obviously I couldn't support myself on that, but it was a huge personal achievement for me because I actually got to earn that kind of money for music. So it just puts into perspective how precarious it is for, for musicians. And as uh, Julie was talking about the barriers to entry for music, it's really only those artists with economic privilege who can afford the precarity of the gig economy or even now musicians in ostensibly more stable jobs. Um, income data suggests that white and male privilege also mitigates the harshness of the gig economy. And uh, according to census data, artists who are women, indigenous, or from racialized communities report even lower median incomes. And if that wasn't uh, troubling enough, there's COVID, okay? So as Colleen and Julie were both saying, these were systemic issues before COVID. COVID has really brought them home and catalyzed the need to engage in discussions that will engender systemic change. And we know that 200,000 jobs were lost in the cultural domains. And as, as Colleen was highlighting, these are really heartbreaking stories of, of individuals who are highly trained and their careers have been put on hold. And even though there are short-term relief programs, the performing arts are unique because we really don't know when we're gonna be able to meet in large numbers in person to the extent that these kinds of activities are economically viable. And there are all sorts of innovative people who are trying to recreate the live experience online, but it's, it's difficult. And uh, the revenue streams aren't necessarily there to sustain that. And certainly the income that you can earn from that is not necessarily gonna be commensurate with the specialized training gap. So as we think about, and we hope to move into phases of less physical distancing, or, or, and as we navigate these new technologies in terms of how we participate in and experience music, we have to think about the systems that we're building and with an eye to stability. And this will require, of course, a multi-pronged response, that, but one that encompasses post-secondary education. And it should, this COVID crisis should serve as a wake-up call and at the same time um, challenge our long-standing characterization of the struggling and starving artist. Great, so what we wanted to do as we try, as we embark on this path of trying to reframe and restructure um, post-secondary education was to, was to learn more about what people were doing who were working in these cultural domains. So we conducted a phenomenological study in 2018-2019, um, and we recruited 18 people who were working in a variety of ways, and we conducted about 45 minutes to an hour. Um, semi-structured interviews with them where we asked them questions about what they were doing presently, how they came to these roles, their experiences in post-secondary, and just to get a, a better under sense of who they were, how they got to what they were doing, and what it is that they were doing. So we're going to share, um, encapsulate some of these things and talk about some of the key findings that emerged from our data. Okay. So are you ready for the big reveal? Go for the big reveal. Okay. So you remember when you saw the, the cultural domains and they were all these like squares and everybody was doing one thing 
That is not the actual lived experience of creative people. And so our whole idea here is we want to uncover and, just, and understand in the breadth and depth of creative work that people are doing. And what we, what we realized here is that all of our interviewees um, are, are engaged in unique portfolio careers. So before I explain this more in depth, I'm just going to walk you through this chart. Each circle represents a job or an income stream. So if you look at someone like, uh, let's say Gabriel, on the, I'm, oh, I, I can do a laser pointer. This is very exciting for me. Look at this, eh? Wow. So Gabriel has essentially three jobs that they do concurrently. They're a performer, they're a drag artist and a singer. They're also an arts administrator and grant writer. And they also have an online social media presence in which they cultivate their own career in terms of art, arts management and sort of expanding the horizons of what that means. So you see here how some, some of the, the circles have two roles in them. That, that just goes to show that even within one job, there's multiple roles, okay? And so we also wanted to understand what people were doing in the different domains. So you see here that people can be um, entrepreneurs in a variety of dis different disciplines. For example, Shannon is an entrepreneur in written and published works because they, you know, they have their own blog and their own web presence. And for and then we have entrepreneurs in social media. We have entrepreneurs in developing new kinds of music making. And what I want to say is this is sort of an evolving understanding for us because each time we look at this data, we're like, well, is Dakota really working in this? this genre or this domain or another domain. And, and so it's sort of really fascinating for us to see the complexity and the breadth. Um, one thing I do want to say is one thing we just couldn't fit anywhere else is the pig. One of our uh, participants was a singer and had a really successful career and gave it up to start a financial consulting business for artists. And he, they really stood alone. So, you know, it's another industry and it's the pig, it stands out. I thought it was cute. Um, so we found that most of our participants had established portfolio careers. And that means multiple jobs, either concurrently or in succession, encompassing work as performers, composers, educators, therapists, writers about music, influencers, curators, uh, people who worked in archives related to music and administrators and, and administrators. And there's really an astonishing breadth, range, and diversity of portfolios. Most of our participants, not all, had completed undergraduate programs, most in music, and many had completed graduate work at the master's or graduate or doctoral level. As participants developed their careers and pursuits following graduation, they were guided by three things. They needed to be creative. This, was, this wasn't a desire, this was a need. Many in the arts speak of the need to be creative as something fundamental the need to serve their community. We also, we have this image of, you know, fame and fortune being the desire of many creative peoples, especially in something that's steeped in all sorts of mythology like opera. And that's not necessarily the case, although it can be part of it. They wanna serve their communities. And of course they wanna be financially stable. They don't necessarily wanna get rich, but they, they want to be able to sustain themselves and sustain their families and sustain their communities. 
it's interesting because a lot of individuals possessed a range of skills which allowed them to pivot in different ways. I was talking about, and here we're talking about multi-genre, multi-arts entrepreneurial work. Others, for example, Morgan, um, apply language skills and digital literacy they, and, and, and grow their own businesses in the online space. Um, the combination of skills makes their work more flexible and more financially sustainable. And while many have worked hard to, uh, that's all right. <laughs> we're having a, we're sharing the space. Take mine. Sorry, I moved some stuff. There should be keys in my, in my coat there. I'm, I'm currently, I greet you from the School of Policy Studies where we're having a dynamic interaction where we're looking for keys. As we look for keys to the future of mid music education, we're also looking for keys to rooms. So uh, bear with me. Sorry, Jean. It's okay. All right. Here. Oh, here. Here are my keys. Thanks. Okay, where was I? Do, 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 do. Yeah, so anyway, um, people work really hard and they work, you know, at different careers and they're not always able to sustain themselves, even though they are really adept at finding new and interesting career paths. And, um, and what we also want to do is, is share essentially how individuals uh, post-secondary music experience prepared them or not for the kinds of portfolio careers that they're currently engaged in. Thanks. Okay. As Colleen and Julia have both mentioned, equity and diversity are really huge issues in the classical music world, um, especially because there's a lot of mythology around opera and it's steeped in all sorts of traditions. Um, and I'm gonna talk about that now. We, we talk, we call this section the divas get real because an important subset of our, of our interviews were trained in opera because we used our personal networks to elicit responses and participants. And many of these people spoke candidly about their training and, and its limitations. Each one of the interviewees spoke to the heavy focus on classical or operatic performance coming at the expense of other skills all regretted the depth of learning or the concentration and refinement of skills on a narrow segment of repertoire um, to the exclusion of opportunities to explore leveraging their abilities in, in, uh, in other areas. They also questioned what it is to make it because success as a classical former for them was predicated on the erasure of elements of their identity. Um, and they were also discouraged from thinking about their career in practical terms. So they were critical of the lack of scope that, that was expected of them or presented in their music uh, education. And so noting that their career did not extend, uh, understanding of career performance did not extend beyond technical development. Um, so thinking about our first person, uh, Kai, they are a singer and creator and entrepreneur who is very involved in creating their own kinds of music theater, but they felt pressure to conform to establish conventions that did not make space for their polyvalent identity or the scope of their creative curiosity. Um, and they have subsequently been on a bit of a creative journey in which they described they've had to unlearn a lot of the things that they 
learned in their post-secondary musical education to carve out a unique and, and multifaceted performance career. Uh, and they're spurred by the desire to transcend the limitations and omissions of classical Western music theater. Um, and it's been a rewarding journey of self-discovery and artistic exploration that aligns with their desire for creative and personal autonomy. Uh, and um, of course, that comes at the expense of financial stability. And that's something that is a bit of a trade-off, you know, do what you want, do what you love, do what makes you feel fulfilled, but give up on a little bit of the, of the financial security that comes from performing more established repertoire. And I should add that uh, they do that when, when the opportunity presents themselves. So next we have Emery, and this is um, what are the consequences of keeping the blinders on? Uh, because Emery who really does everything and concurrently, and I don't know how they do it. Uh, they found early success. They were a professional opera singer at the age of 22, but that for them came at the expense of important things. And they say, I was young and inexperienced. I had to figure out who I was in terms of my gender expression and really looking at my cultural heritage and how I was denying so much of that and trying to wipe my, wash myself on so many levels. So this process of discovery has led to a portfolio career uh, encompassing creation. Um, they write and direct and perform their own works. They're an artistic associate with the theater company. They teach voice, they're part of a drumming group. It's, uh, they're also a community activist. And again, there's that financial st st instability, but a sort of an innate understanding that this is deeply fulfilling on a variety of levels. And they say, everything's kind of infusing everything which is really exciting. This web I've created subconsciously operating in the background to help me make a better, more holistic artist. I think our next participant, Charlie, was really adept at um, unpacking what they perceive to be the lack of vision in existing music education program, programs. Like Kai and Emery, Kai, uh, Charlie trained as a, as a singer and now runs a mid-sized artistic, uh, as an artistic director and theater director of a music theater company. Um, and is very, very successful. And he sees the limitation primarily in terms of the fact that in his view, people are not given control of their own artistry. The established message is, this is the style, the teacher is the expert and do it as I say. And you know, it's, it's talking about giving people their artistic agency and letting them explore. He advocates for letting people experiment, collaborate and, and learn about what they like and where they're passionate. And that can then open up jobs to them. So it's more of a, a conscious process of education in which these pathways are and, and these modalities are made explicit in the education. And the traditional model in the classical performance is, is sometimes referred to as the pipeline model, where there's one path that's a professional performer or a star in classical performance, and you're going to make it. Um, and Morgan, who I mentioned earlier, who's a performer, a teacher of voice, and also runs their own writing and, and, and publishing business online, um, they talk about the, 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 the tropes that we are told as music um, students, and I think this might resonate for those of us who are pursuing graduate degrees in the humanities, I don't know, but I'll, I'll tell you what they said. Oh, you have to dedicate yourself to this and you have to want it more than anything because it's a super difficult life and you can only do this and there's and you should only do it if you can't 
imagine yourself doing anything else. And Morgan said instinctively, okay, he thought that was bullshit, his words. But he said, oh, they said, I'll swallow the pill. Um, and, and they kind of wished that in their music education, someone had said, you can be a performer and you can do other things. And we're here to help prepare you for that mentally and give you skill sets. Um, one other thing I want to say about Morgan is we often think about artists and creators choosing to embrace a portfolio career because of income. And while that is often true, it is not the only motivating factor. Because this pipeline model, people realize that a career in performance isn't necessarily uh, creatively or artistically fulfilling. So for Morgan, um, the desire to start their own publishing business was what's something that I can take with me? What's something that is going to be artistically fulfilling? And what's something that uh, is going to give me an income? So that sort of speaks to the ingenuity and uh, entrepreneurial spirit of many of our participants as they try to craft these sort of portfolio uh, careers. Yeah, so another prevalent theme throughout our interviews was this notion, as you can see on the screen here, of happenstance or serendipity. This came up in many, many of our interviews. And because of the misalignment about which we became more and more conscious as we progressed through the interviews, we approached narratives of following one's dreams or trusting fate or making it with some interest and eventually skepticism and some concern. All of our participants indicated valuing some level of stability but not all achieved it despite hustling as they described it. Um, and in many cases, despite having achieved a relatively high status career or position in music, a few participants did find some level of stability. And we thought we would highlight just a couple of those for you. So one is Avery. Avery is interesting because they were one of two of our participants not to be educated in a post-secondary music program, but who managed nevertheless to, this is a great story, meet um, a producer while they were bartending, and then be, to be offered a job in music administration as a booking agent, which has turned out to be an incredibly lucrative career um, for them. So this is perhaps one story of happenstance that really works out and, um, you know, that, that we feel okay about. <laughs> The other is Alex, who works as a museum curator and a performer. And Alex did a traditional undergraduate degree in music, as well as um, studying a stringed instrument in a really focused way, focused again on performance. Then they went on to do graduate work, both a master's degree and a PhD. And they shared that throughout their, their degrees, they you know were interested in working with people and maybe it'd be good to work with the CBC or something like this, but these uh, pathways were never made clear to them. Um, they had no idea how they would go about doing these things. And so ended up pursuing this extensive academic uh, training and eventually interviewed for a postdoc position on the very same day that they were offered the job at the museum. So in the end, it all worked out and they did achieve the stability that they were looking for. But the path was a little bit sort of circuitous. These are folks, nevertheless, who hustled and did achieve some level of stability. But then we have folks like Gabriel um, in the middle on the left there, who is a performer, an artist manager, um, and an entrepreneur. Now, this person is, um, you know, works in, in, an, in actually a very high level, high status position in music and is incredibly successful, articulate, brilliant, productive, all these things. 
But because their work involves a lot of contract work and a lot of travel, they don't have a home address. Uh, they, they're couch surfing effectively, which is tiring. And of course, also very stressful. And they are looking for some level of stability, but just can't seem to you know, find the right position to offer that. So this person hustles, has lots of skills, um, and happenstance really just hasn't worked out. Another example is Quinn, who uh, is another example of someone with a Bachelor of Music degree in piano performance, as well as a master's degree and a DMA in performance. The happenstance here is that Quinn kept doing again more degrees, not sure of how to pivot out or from those. And I'll, again, this is a highly creative individual who works in administration with a Canadian arts festival. They are creative and entrepreneurial, but have significant responsibilities at home and are really looking for the stability of, a, um, of some kind of um, music related income and really feel the struggle of the gig economy. And another thing that came out strongly in Quinn's story was again, this deep disappointment that they feel at not having made it um, in terms of the narrative that they followed so carefully and faithfully throughout all of their degrees. And this is a theme that comes up in so many of the interviews. Finally, I'll bring your attention to Sage who trained traditionally in a Bachelor of Music and Opera, went to Europe to explore a solo performance career and was very successful there still performs internationally, but also has transformed their social media presence into a second career. So this person is also a social media uh, influencer, we might say. Their journey was very much one that relied on serendipity. So as they explained it, they found this need in the community through their own personal uh, Instagram account and then turned it into a consulting and coaching business. But while the business is incredibly successful and they've achieved some level of you know, international fame, really, and, and renown from this, it hasn't necessarily resulted in an income stream that, that can supplement their otherwise precarious performance income stream. And so just a couple of things that stand out from this slide that I'd like to highlight. One is that these are all individuals that are working incredibly hard, um, employing their skills in interesting and diverse ways, but, you know, they're not always working out. These individuals all trusted in the system, so trusted in their education to um, hopefully bring them some level of stability and, and income. And finally, their stories reveal a need to recast the notion of making it as Ben explained earlier. Because the amazing thing is that all of the participants that we interviewed really had achieved some level of um, incredible success, right, in the, um, in, in music, in, in a bunch of different ways, but they were would be regarded sort of publicly as being incredibly successful in some ways. Um, and yet they've all struggled incredibly hard to get where they are. And there's all, most of them finding that they are unable to support themselves financially um, in a sustainable way. And so by leading these portfolio careers where they juggle multiple roles, also they're dealing with the shame that's associated with not being able to sustain a solo career in performance, which is something that is really emphasized a lot in, um, in music education. And again, we heard this in many of the stories um, throughout these interviews. And then just to pick up on some of the threads that um, Colleen and Ben were talking about in this, this next slide, we wanted to zoom out a little bit. And as Ben mentioned, many of the portfolios 
we're on this balance of juggling of people trying to manage creative um, and challenging um, and meaningful activities while also trying to find some kind of financial stability. So um, in this slide, you'll see a variety of different portfolios. And what I want to do is just talk through um, the, how each of these three pillars are realized within their portfolio. So I'll start with Marley. And Marley is um, somebody who works um, as an archivist um, for a national government organization, and they manage the music archives. And they talk about how their role allows them to apply their passion for musical stories and to explore and curate different types of musical artifacts. So, and they've had they've um, had a quite a their mid career, and it, and in hearing their story, we're able to see that within this one role, they're able to find meaning and creativity, and as well as financial stability. So you can see this kind of stable employee role provides those things for them. Hunter um, also has an employee role there. Um, their first degree was in um, music education and they work as a high school teacher and they started full-time but they have actually gone to less than full-time because they wanted to pursue more kinds of creative activities related to education so they do curriculum development they do consultant work um, they do some work overseas um, in terms of education and they also play in a rock band so here we see how someone wasn't finding one particular role meeting all of those three pillars so they scaled back in terms of their employee role so they could take on other types of gigs and performances to create something quite meaningful. Um, then I'll go to the right hand side which is Taylor and when we met Taylor, Taylor was working in an administrative role for a leisure organization and they had come to their administration skills from their first role which was music related for a music organization where they developed these administration roles which they found to be quite creative and um, and they could solve problems and serve the community in a variety of ways. So they had developed their administrative roles through the original organization and then had their own their own administration um, business. And then they had since gone back to work for Leisure. And then to help um, grow their creativity and creating to the society, they continue to sing and they sing in a church choir. And they also um, lead fitness classes, which they um, liken to a type of performance and sharing kind of role. And then the final person we'll talk about is Dorian. And Dorian um, completed a film degree. He's another one of our participants who didn't do a music degree and was a self-taught um, musician and developed musical skills throughout um, their childhood. So they were able to, or they are able to combine both their film editing skills and their film recording skills, as well as their sound recording and sound editing skills to create a portfolio where they're doing a variety of those roles. And when we met them, they had purposely decided to quit any other, they had an office job, but they wanted to see if they could do it with only their sound editing and their film editing roles. So they were talking about just trying to cobble together and, and build their networks as much as they could to see if they could sustain themselves within that one skill set. So there you see the same icons with different colors showing that they're doing similar kinds of work for a variety of different things. So as we kind of conclude this, what, what we see here, I'm just, we just wanted to reshow this kind of these three pillars. And when we think about realigning and re-engaging, when we 
when we categorized our participants, we put them in four categories. So we had people who worked in professional programs. So we talked about the music educator and the music therapist. And we found that generally they were well prepared because they needed a professional designation and they knew what kinds of roles they could take, but they maybe needed some more understanding about the, the possibility with outside of those professional um, situations like education, where you could do things within the world. Um, then we also talked to our sound recording people, Dorian was one of them, and they seemed to understand the scope of what the field was, and they were able to make informed decisions about how much they wanted their income to come from their creative activities, and they could figure out ways to balance that, and they had an understanding of how to build a network that seemed to be gleaned through, um, through their education. The third group of people were... Um, we were Marley and Alex who were working within museums and archives and they both talked about um, it wasn't so much that their skills didn't realign it was the realization that those were feasible opportunities for them to pursue and they um, relied on just offhanded comments to even know that one could be a museum and have be a musician and that skill set was necessary and needed and then finally we have the people who are performing in a variety of ways and for them, in some ways, we see kind of the most tragic story because they really trusted in the system and they worked really, really hard, but they seemed to have needed to unpack or they were kind of left on their own to develop their own niche within um, their systems. So as we kind of grapple with these things on the next slide, we have what we envision are some ways to maybe reframe that. And so you see these colors where where we're thinking more holistically and broader about what music can entail that is beyond um, the recreation of specific pieces that encompasses things about those three pillars that we talked about is how are you creative individually? What communities do you wanna serve? And then how do you leverage that or what decisions do you need to make about your financial or your professional identity within those things? I think it's also important for us to reframe what we mean by musician and to think about how people want to build portfolios and how um, they want to use their skills for the performance of music or also to empower others or also to share others' stories. And then also to inform the different ways and the different parts of the cultural industries that they could belong to. And then I think the other thing to think about in terms of post-secondary and the university is also ways that we can do research to help inform the cultural domains and think about some of the barriers or inequities that are happening within um, our cultural um, frameworks. So um, it's clear that our, our findings point to the need to redefine and combine academic and practical in new ways. Um, and this is in part because in many post-secondary music programs, speaking of utility and application is uh, seen as selling out. Um, and when Colleen speaks about the shame of, of, of failing to attain that sort of pinnacle, of our solo performance career and that all or nothing thing that sort of negates the ways that music can be applied professionally and personally. I think that's something that I have personally experienced. And I know that a lot of people who have studied music have felt that too. And we know that the language of skill sets and employability is tied to neoliberal market-driven models of education. And those critiques certainly resonate with us at the same time, we kind of think this is a false dichotomy and we argue 
that it's possible to educate creative and critical leaders while also eliminating and supporting career paths in music. And we recognize that this area that we're studying is but one piece of the policy puzzle. And so it's, it's not meant to be a panacea, but it's rather to illuminate the ways that post-secondary music education can support individuals who want to be musicians and who also want to achieve that sense of fulfillment and stability that, uh, that we have observed. And we argue that by doing this, we will create a more equitable curriculum. Our research and similar research that's taken place in a Canadian context show that students enroll in post-secondary music educations as a gateway to establishing a career in that field. And this motivation needs to be acknowledged in curriculum. And as we have spoken about, just to underline this fact again, studying music for music's sake as a quote unquote frivolous pleasure is not an option for many students, especially for new Canadians and for those without parents able to financially contribute to their education, either at the post-secondary level or as Julie was speaking, in the formative years where one's ability to study music is predicated on the ability of your family to afford private music lessons. Framing our curriculum in this way, in a way that helps students see the ways that artistry and financial stability are connected or intention will help future students make more informed decisions about their artistic ventures and career paths. And just by way of a brief conclusion, um, we'll just uh, again reiterate that there's great opportunity to be had in the cultural domains and illuminating this through program structures rather than allowing students to fall into this kind of work by happenstance could also attract a more diverse student body, thus expanding the artistic possibilities that could then flood our cultural domains. This is the next step in creating equitable access to music and equitable representation in our cultural domains. If we wish to increase the diversity of university music graduates, we need to consider career trajectory and potential employment an often overlooked barrier to equity for our student population. So again, COVID-19 has not created, but has rather magnified the precarity of arts work and has also called us to examine more closely the structural issues inherent in the training and education of artists. As such, our research on the nature of the careers of music educated individuals in the Canadian cultural domains might provide an impetus and maybe a starting point for a discussion around reconsidering the career trajectories of our students. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Colleen, Julia, and Ben. That was really interesting and enlightening. Um, you made me think differently about myself and my own life. My mother was a musician and always had a lot of jobs, had difficulty making ends meet. Um, and I currently study kind of the gig economy in some ways. And I'd never actually thought about how she was part of the gig economy before the gig economy became a structural change within the larger economy itself. Um, so yeah, I guess just, I think that's really interesting to think about how musicians have always been placed in that very precarious situation. And, and that precarity keeps getting compounded uh, through neoliberalization, through the pandemic. Um, so thank you for sharing all of that with us. It's really, really, has been really interesting. Uh, so we have a question already in the comments from Neil Hobbs. I can read the question, but Neil, you're also welcome to ask it yourself if you would like to. Give you a second. Um, 
Thanks. This was a fascinating discussion. I, I think my thoughts are really about the musicians of tomorrow and how they may be put off or encouraged to enter post-secondary music education. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, Neil. Hi, Neil. Um, I, I, well, I think that's one of our hopes when we think about reframing and restructuring music education is that we can help um, think, I think part of it is children are the musicians of tomorrow and we should always be encouraging children to think of their ideas um, musically and artistically. And if they choose to share that as part of their career, I think um, our programming needs to reflect that and help them shape what's, what those things are. So I think, I think we need to think about that and embed those things in, um, in both our secondary education and our post-secondary education. And, and hopefully we can give some opportunities for that to happen through field work or even just the types of courses where people will come up with their own creative identity. So, yeah. Thank you so much. I, um, I just like to add to that. Hi, Neil. It's nice to it's nice to see you um, on Zoom. Nice here. to be here. <laughs> um, I just add that you know th there is I think more breadth of opportunity available in the cultural domains than than perhaps um, you know students considering studying music in post secondary might even realize, um, including myself. You know, I there was. I really went, I, I studied music because I wanted to be a performer and I thought, but, but also that's, that's all I thought I could do. I could do that. Or I thought I could teach music. Those were the two things that I thought I could do with that. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to know that there are such diverse, um, you know, such a range of opportunities available for, for students as well. So. Yeah. Um, Colleen, just to pick up on that. Um, one of the things that you get told in music schools a lot, a lot is that you have to have a plan B because it, will, it might not work out for you. It probably won't work out for you. And, but that plan B is, not, is, not, is often not related to music. And, and it's what, one of the things that we discovered in our research is that the different options are not necessarily made explicit in the scope of the music education. And, you know, Colleen spoke of, of her experience. My own experience is that I also tried to, tried, no, I, I was, I had a, like, this is the thinking. I had a bit of a solo career. Yes, I did. And, uh, but when that wasn't working out for me financially and personally, I thought I'd failed. And I had the privilege of working for the government all through my music training. So I thought, oh, I'll retrain in, uh, in government and and I was online and I was just doing you know people who work for the government and I stumbled across the fact that there was actually a place where you developed music policy I had no idea none that was not ever an option for me I knew there was cultural policy but something that is specifically for music that that wasn't clear to me and so um, I think that perhaps if I had known a little bit more about how that worked and as a potential pathway, I, I would have been able to have, um, I don't know if I would have heard it at the time, but I think it would have uh, saved me a lot of grief as I was trying to navigate what my, my own professional trajectory looked like. 
Thank you. I think Bill has a Bill Ignatov, Ignatov, sorry, has a related question. Um, I can ask it or Bill, you're welcome to ask it. Oh, okay, I'll jump in. Um, this this whole talk and this research, I mean, it's just very close to my heart and many people that I've known and, and even in my own story, I mean, I did for seven years, I was one of those people. I earned my living as a as a musician and actually did quite well. But but um, I'm just to help us think through where we might be going. Are are there example? What examples do you um, use to to guide your thinking and formulating ideas? I'm thinking of we've had, for example, in the GTA some some amazing and still have I think, but not as as many or as strong uh, high schools where where there are amazing arts programs, specialized arts programs. We have in our own, at our own university here at Queens, the artist and community education program and the faculty of education. Um, so, and, and then in, in Frontenac County, we have the focus programs, which have really uh, had played a very important role, I think in helping uh, youth find a way and see new possibilities. So what examples do you use as researchers, the three of you in, in thinking about future directions? Sure, I can, I can start with that. Hi, Bill. Um, thanks for that question. I think, you know, you, you cite some really good examples um, with, with the high school sp skills special major in the different schools and the secondary programs for regional arts. And I think some of those people then end up in um, post-secondary programs, ACE being one of them for music education, which I think has been really good. And I think, you know, your question, part of it is just us getting the stories of our folks. And the, and the one stories that I think stand out to me are our digital creators who, um, like there's one person in particular who did an undergrad first in um, trumpet and in jazz performance, and then went on to the US to do um, digital composition. And it just seemed like there was a really interesting, in their education, there was a broadness of skill sets. So they talked about in their undergraduate education, this blending of jazz and classical music. And then when they went down to California, they ended up um, meeting up with somebody and they composed um, a piece that they composed a soundtrack for for a film or a short film that got nominated for an Oscar. And so I think it's just really interesting how we see this combination of theoretical and practical and crossing genres. And I think those are, that's the thinking that I think frames me is how do we, how do we help people think very broadly, develop, do really good at lots of different things and figure out what the reality is around those things. And also how do we transfer that into ways that they can think about um, earning their livings through those things? I don't know if anybody else wants to say. Sure, there's a, I mean, in terms of post-secondary, there's a, a wonderful music program. I hate to move out of Canada, but in the US at, um, DePauw University, they have what's called the 21st Century Musician um, Program, which is just, you know, it's all about entrepreneurship. It's all about getting musicians out into the, into the community to engage with sort of, you know, in unlikely sort of situations and, and really encouraging them to kind of foster their own um, place in their communities. 
and it's a, I think it's, it's a wonderful model and something that we would be, you know, wise to, to follow in Canada. Um, but, you know, in individual courses, I know that, you know, Julie and Ben and I do, uh, you know, all kinds of sort of tr trying to embrace experiential learning for students, trying to bring community members and musicians and arts workers into the class to describe to students what it is that they do and how they got there and um, and to have students job shadow folks um, out in the industry. So with an opera course that I taught last year, students went to Toronto and Montreal to job shadow folks in the field doing their everyday things. Um, and I think it was really enlightening for them to see that in action because that's not something you get to do. You know, I didn't I didn't do much of that in my own uh, training, which was many years ago. But anyway. Um, yeah, the one thing I'll add, this might be a little controversial. I don't know. Um, I was I was very fortunate to be, I'm very fortunate to be from the prairies. Actually, all of us are from the prairies. And one of the cool things about a lot of places in the prairies, and I hope this is still the case, is the strong community traditions associated with music, whether that be strong public education, whether that be access to music making in community and family settings. And many, many of our participants spoke of that too, singing in six part harmony in their, in their families. I don't mean to sound idyllic or anything, but I think it's if we value this and we want it to continue, it's up to us to sort of advocate for community forms of music making that's not just predicated on private lessons, but ways that we can make music together in the community. And I think that's especially important now in COVID where uh, community bonds are stretched and tenuous, but more important than ever in ways that maybe we can think about facilitating that through the digital space. I'm not talking about like government programs to do that, but for each of us, uh, and especially those of us, um, I mean, I, I don't have kids myself, but I, I was talking to a friend of mine and, and she, she trained as a musician, similar, she did a performance career and, and now she's a therapist and uh, she lives in a rural community in BC and she, she's a mom of three kids. And she said, you know, uh, the most important for me thing for me now as a musician is to make music with my children. And, you know, we're spending a lot of time with our families and, and, and uh, so thinking about ways that we can embed that into our own experiences as a way to sustain uh, music making. Is there anyone else who has any questions? I have a question that's quite different from the way that the conversation has been going, but I can ask it anyway. Uh, so I'm an economic geographer. And one of the things that I was struck by was your discussion of Avery. And you mentioned that they were able to make quite a lucrative career in booking. And so that made me think like, are there, if we're thinking about music, I'm thinking about the value chain of like, let's say making music. Are there some occupations where there's a lot more money being accrued or a lot more value being accrued than like perhaps the performer themselves is making? Um, and so if you can maybe talk a little bit about that. I, th I think Ben, you can start this one. Oh yeah, well, certainly one of the things we know about the arts, one of the things that people often say is feasts and famine. And that transcends the type of job and also um, your, your degree of success. 
success in that job. So for example, the thing about opera, which is something that Colleen and I both studied and many people studied, you know, nice work if you can get it. And if you get it, won't you tell me how you can make six figures? Not very many people do, but it is possible, especially in Europe. Um, one of the other things where there is in musically related is in, in composing for video games. One of our participants was a music teacher uh, and they, they, a band teacher in high school, and they also on the side, they composed um, video game music. And they said in some years they make $15,000 and in other years they make more composing than they do as, um, as, a, as a teacher. And, and that's, I think, incredibly interesting. But what it also highlights is the fact that Often these kinds of jobs, like, like what Colleen was saying as performers in the Canadian Opera Chorus, they, they're well paid when you're working, but you don't know when you're gonna be working and it's, it's, very, it's extremely variable. Um, so that's another consideration. And the final thing is, um, if you're talking about a career in music or in the arts that are related to uh, public funding, if you're an arts administrator or a policy analyst or an archivist or a teacher and you have that sort of stable income, that's definitely a factor. Um, but we know uh, from the data that certain types of domains, that median income is much better than in others. For example, if you work in the audiovisual industry, chances are you're going to make a lot more money than you do as a, are as a performer not to mention a dancer who are usually the most poorly remunerated of all uh, creative individuals. So, you know, I think a lot of people are sold this narrative that, you know, you're gonna make it and making it is that you're gonna be a star. And, and like many things, you know, like sports or uh, any other domains, it's a numbers game and, uh, and so there's a lot of variety, if, if that makes any sense. I think, I think I would just add to that, kind of to underscore um, what Ben was saying too. In, you know, earlier when you talked about the average um, artist or performer makes about 24,000, I believe there's another statistic for the cultural worker. So the person who works for the arts organization who makes maybe right. 42. So, which is yeah. interesting when we think about framing that there's probably more stability behind the stage than there is on the stage. I think the second thing to think about too is when you make it, um, so you get a gig at, let's say the COC or you get um, a solo role, that's for one gig. And then you have to make it again and make it again, right? So there's kind of this, loop. And I think we forget that. I know that Colleen and I talk about that in performance and education, that sometimes it takes a long time get, to get a permanent teaching job, but then you have a permanent teaching job where if it takes a long time for you to get a singing role, you have to still get the next role. And sometimes that's precarious. And the third thing I'll say about Avery and some of our folks too is I know in Avery's um, transcript, when we ask them for recommendations and they say, well, if you want my job, I'm like, there's like five or six people in the world who do what I do. So you're going to have to wait till I leave. And so I think that's probably true um, in terms of the hyper specialization of music archivists that I think there's fewer roles, but I think what they illuminate are those possibilities at perhaps different levels and the way that we can embed musical knowledge across the domains. 
Yeah, I just want to I just want to add quickly that that something else that I find super fascinating about these really lucrative domains like digital inter interactive media, these these really, you know, like the video game interactive media type um, domains are um, is that many folks who are in music related positions have not been educated traditionally through traditional pathways, right? So they would not have um, gone through, for example, um, university training in music, which, you know, is fine. It's, it's just very interesting in terms of, of thinking about alignment and thinking about sending future students to this kind of, um, to this kind of work, which can be incredibly lucrative. And yet, you know, um, folks doing this work often um, have been self-taught or have come through, you know, through other avenues. So. Thank you. That's really illuminating, really interesting. Uh, are there any other questions out there? I have a question which no one else has. Go ahead, Aicha. Um, so this is fascinating. Thank you very much. And I feel like, you know, although your conclusion kind of steered away from neoliberalization of labor uh, and, or, and work, basically, I think, you know, like similar studies could have been done for, I don't know, writers, journal, freelance writers, journalists, photographers, uh, academics, you know, uh, and also, you know, I think there was a, uh, there was a, you know, serious debate about humanities department in the last 20 years as well, uh, you know, for the graduates of, I don't know, archaeology, classics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, ask you about something and, you know, and I know this is kind of a big question, uh, but how about organizing? Uh, was there any kind of response or question in your, in your study about, you know, uh, I don't know, creating a union like the Freelance Writers Union or, you know, the guilds? Because you, you talked about Europe uh, in multiple occasions, and I think one of the kind of their you know, uh, strongest, I would say, or the one of their strength is that, you know, they're unionized, the majority of them, right? Um, so that's, that's kind of my question. Yeah. I'm gonna let Colleen take the lead on that one. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is difficult. This is a, this is a great question. And, you know, in the conversation piece we talk about, we, we do a bit of a comparison between a European scenario and the Canadian one. Um, and it isn't and it, about opera specifically. And the interesting thing about um, this situation with the Canadian Opera Company, as far as I know, is that the orchestral players are unionized, but the singers are not. They and are. so, oh, they are, but, Part oh, it. it's right. But their union, the union there were issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's where we ended up Sorry. with this incredible. I, 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 no, go ahead. Go ahead, Ben. No, there. Uh, what I mean to say is, when oftentimes with um, with uh, professional artistic work uh, in terms of unionization, um, when you get to do that union job, it pays very well. But what's happening as budgets tighten is you might get fewer hours. So if you're in an opera chorus whereas you would have gotten a month of rehearsal time and then your fee for performances, um, now they would only give you one week of rehearsal time in your performances. So you're, even though you are unionized and your union is advocating on your behalf, um, the, the economics trump that and it's, and it's very difficult. Um, so um, 
that's that's what I would say about unions. And I mean, um, in the cultural domains, there are very strong pockets of union uh, membership and union work. For example, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, ACTRA, which is the the uh, Actors Union for Stage. I was part of Equity, which is the the union for stage workers, IATSE, which is the stagehands. Um, what unfortunately often happens for singers is everybody gets paid before the singer. And this is what Colleen was talking about. If you think about uh, in, in what was happening at the Canadian Opera Company, and that's kind of one of the issues that I've experienced with unions. The other thing is that a lot of these new digital realities are a sort of they are regulated. They are regulated by big tech multinational corporations in that sphere. But there's, I don't know a lot about the collective organizing in the digital sphere. And I don't know if that's because the industries aren't fully developed. I don't know if that's because it's a, it's, it, it can be a very singular path. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a YouTube star. Where's the sense of solidarity for the group? What I will tell you about musical performance, at least as I've experienced it in classical music, where you're dealing with ensembles of 80 to 100 people, is that sense of community and creating a community and acting as a community and advocating as a community for your work and the work uh, and the workers. And that's, I think, a very um, that's really something that I find quite special, not just in the sense of uh, organizing for your rights but also in terms of the community that you make. The other thing I will take talk, I wanted to talk about in relation to your question is um, one of our, um, is music as activism. And that's something that we encountered in a few of our interviewees, especially in the slide that I was talking about with Kai and Emery. And they, they are themselves, they would consider themselves to be music musicians and activists so their their music the act of creation for them it has an activist orientation especially for uh for emory it's it's sort of uh oriented in that way does that answer your question a little Sure. How about uh, Julia and Colleen? Do you folks have anything to add? I, I think in terms of, you know, just to build on what Ben was saying is it's, it's hard. I think, I think you, I think your question gets at the idea of how do we advocate for the financial stability of artists and who are we advocating to? So we are often advocating to another nonprofit organization that also has tight margins and everybody's trying to be frugal. And so I'm just trying to figure out if it's a way that we need to really think about how we think about and fund the arts writ large and also kind of this slippery nature or this portfolio nature of what we do. And I think, I think that's kind of what Ben was getting at is we have all of these unions, but then we have people, there's organizations that can work around those unit unions or there's economics drive that because there's so much budget. And I think the other thing is as artists, we're trained to think of the art before ourselves. And 
and will and people will say, well, this is, you know, this is just such a great thing. And I, I'm so passionate about this show that I'll do it for free. And and I think we need to help artists think about think about that a little bit differently. And and I think that what strikes me is when I think about that or when I compare that to lawyers, because I know that when lawyers advocate or strike very big defenses, one of the things we talk about is, well, they can't afford the lawyer's fees. And we never say to the lawyer, they should charge less. But we'll say the same thing to the artist, right? Like, this is really important. Like, I've done things or played piano, and they're like, oh, do you think you could do this for a little bit less because we don't have so much money? But they don't say that to the caterers. They don't say, like, if at a wedding, they don't say that to anybody else. So why is it okay? And who then advocates for for the for the arts? And it, it kind of goes back to that first slide where we're all making music and we're all streaming things, but we're not sure if the people who made that are getting paid. And I think... I think that crosses it. And and I don't know if that's a one answer or if that's just us really rethinking how these structures work. I don't know, Colleen, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to add to that. It's, I mean, it's a very, it's a problem. And and like you say, this is something that, you know, it's, the union piece is something that I hadn't really thought a lot about, but but should, it's a great question. I guess we could ask you because you said there's a freelance writers union. What's what's yeah. been what's been this like? What has been that experience for writers? I don't know. I'm not a writer. Uh, <laughs> I just love unions. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll just find it and then put it on the chat. Okay, that'd be great. Uh, are there any other questions out there? Okay, well, we're coming up to time anyway. So I just want to thank the three of you again for participating. Um, we had initially envisioned this as being a panel, but you came with a presentation all put together. And so you made it really easy for us. Thank you for um, <laughs> having such a coherent, well-packaged presentation. Um, so yeah, we're very, very happy to have had you here. Um, and thank you. Just before we go, I do want to say, uh, or just give a sense of what our next SNID will be. So we do have one more SNID of the fall term. It will be held on November 26th. And we are co-hosting this event with Migration Speaks series. Uh, and we are welcoming Panos Hatsipopropio from the Aristotle University in Greece. And his talk is gonna focus on the refugee crisis of 2015-2016 and the economic practices and networks that have emerged from the refugee camps, I believe in Greece specifically. Um, so again, that will be on November 26th during our regular time slot, 1 to 2.20 p.m. And it will be at the same Zoom link. And we will get uh, some posters out for that. And we've also been finalizing our lineup for the winter and we will be spreading the word about that shortly as well. So thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you to our speakers. Uh, this was a really wonderful conversation. So thank and, you. And thank you to the organizers and for this mm -hmm. conversation and for the thanks. wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thanks, all. Thank you. Thank you. Happy day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.